Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we're turning the mic over to the Friends for a Nonviolent World, also known as FNVW. Charlotte Sebastian is one of the producers of FNVW's podcast. Charlotte, can you tell me about what role you play there with FNVW and the podcast and what we're going to hear today? Sure. My role with the podcast is, uh, as you mentioned, I'm one of the producers, and I actually wasn't familiar with the Friends for a Nonviolent World until... I retired about four years ago and was looking for some meaningful work to keep myself entertained and do some good. One of the volunteer match websites alerted me to this opportunity to produce a podcast. It's really turned out to be a wonderful opportunity to learn more about this extraordinary organization, FNVW, and the amazing work that they're doing in working to reduce, eliminate violence in the world, and through the podcast to learn about other organizations and individuals who are either victims of violence, who have perpetrated violence, or who are working to address violence in a whole variety of ways. In the four years that the podcast has been in operation, We've talked to just such a wide range of individuals and organizations, I think over 30 episodes on topics that include indigenous boarding schools, which the Quakers actually had a role. You know, it's a good example of good intentions that had unintended consequences. We've profiled the role that music has played in social justice work, and we've looked at even how the training of service dogs by people who are incarcerated has reduced violence in that population. And that's just a few of the topics that we've addressed. Today, what we're going to be doing is sharing a couple of episodes related to the work that FNVW does with the Alternatives to Violence Project, referred, of course, by an acronym, AVP. So two different episodes looking at AVP and individuals who've been impacted by AVP, The first one is focusing on the Eagles Healing Nest. That's an organization located in Sauk Center, Minnesota, that helps veterans and their families heal from what they characterize as the invisible wounds of war. Well, welcome to the Everyday Nonviolence Podcast. I'm Ellery McCardle, today's host, and we are welcoming three guests from the Eagles Healing Nest, an organization based in Sauk Center, Minnesota, which provides residential facilities and support for veterans and their families. The Nest is dedicated to healing the invisible wounds of war carried by servicemen and women. Melanie Butler is the founder, director, and chair. Mike Dunphy is a former resident and Alec Embry currently lives at The Nest. I want to thank you all so much for being a part of this really important conversation today. And Melanie, I want to start with you. You are the daughter, wife, and mother of veterans. And I understand that you founded The Nest um, because you saw a need based on 
your experience and their experience. Can you um, elaborate more on that for me? My stepfather was a Vietnam vet, and we all know what they endured coming back from Vietnam after being drafted. It was pretty ugly. And so I promised him that I would help take care of veterans. I didn't know where that would be or take me to in my world. So we did, our family did four deployments in five years. And my son came home and he was suicidal. And the VA turned him away. And so I was challenged to come with the solution. And I always believed that if you gave them a place, they could create their own place and programs that they needed to heal with honor. And so here we are. So the Nest offers a a lot of services and programs surrounding things like therapy, chemical dependency, um, outdoor adventures, a lot of different things. Um, But when you first started on this journey, did you have any idea that you would be where you are today with it? Absolutely not. My original uh, plan was to house eight to 12 veterans in a rural house in central Minnesota somewhere, but obviously God had something else in store and ended up here in Sox Center. So we currently house uh, and can house up to 100 veterans currently. Mike, I want to go to you next. Uh, You previously stayed at the Nest. Can you talk about what brought you there? Sure. So from... 2020, uh, July 2020, I was released from a United States penitentiary in uh, Virginia, USP Lee, Virginia. And I was sent down to the Southern District of Texas, where I caught a case transporting marijuana across the border from Madam Morris to Brownsville, Texas. And um, I did my time. And I was supposed to go back down there to do my supervised release and go to a halfway house. So I took a couple of days on a bus from Virginia down to Texas. And when I got there, I couldn't go in the federal building because we're on COVID lockdown. Um, so I called, I stood outside of the federal building that, that Friday morning and talked to my federal PO. And I was told that I could not get in the halfway house that they had set me up in five months before. I'm homeless, don't have any money. What am I going to do down there? Except for possibly, you know, the same thing I was doing before I got locked up. A friend of mine, Christina Howard in Lafayette, who works with the Mary T. Clinker Foundation, had uh, talked to me about the Eagle's Nest. Um, she had worked with homeless veterans before. I'd worked with her before and um, asked me about that. I thought, yeah, it sounds great, but good luck because I'm on federal probation down in the Southern District of Texas, so I don't know how that's going to work. Her and Melanie talked to my PO, and within an hour, my federal probation was transferred up to Minnesota, and I had a bus ticket that night. So I uh, took a few days and uh, got up here to the Eagle Ceiling Nest in uh, the beginning of August of 2020. And, and what has that experience been like since you've been here? So speaking from experience, because I've been out of prison before, there I've never experienced or seen or even heard of any kind of program that is like this. Um, oftentimes there are certain requirements that are put on to prisoners getting out of whether it be a state prison or federal prison, um, things that they have to do to meet certain requirements from whatever that is. Well, the nest seems to kind of cover all of that stuff and it's located on 124 acre ground. So there's all these, you don't have to travel. You don't have to find a ride to get to this meeting and then to go do this thing. Plus your housing's taken care of your food's taken care of. Those, Those are two huge things that you don't have to worry about getting out of prison to have to pay for. 
because you, typically you get out of prison, you have to find a job, you have to pay for this. And then you know, there's all these requirements that you have to do and you have to pay for. Well, the nest kind of encompasses all that, takes care of it. And uh, it, it gives you the opportunity to overcome all those hurdles as soon as you get out. It sounds pretty life changing for you. For sure. It was it was huge. It, it's been a huge deal in my life. Um, I, I've gotten involved with things that I never thought that I would before. And um, also have been able to kind of manifest some of the things that I had set my intentions upon while I was incarcerated. So you're no longer on campus there, but how have you stayed involved? Okay. So uh, one of the things that I do is I've always thought that physical fitness was a huge part of um, mental health wellness. Um also help with recovery from addiction. Um, I had experience fighting before um, MMA and boxing. So I started a boxing class out here at the nest um, and also a strength and conditioning class. So three days a week, I'm out here in the morning um, running those kind of things. I also stay in contact with a lot of residents, especially residents who were in the same house that I was when I was a house manager out here but other residents as well. Um, and typically kind of your day-to-day maintenance kind of things that need to get done around here that maybe a lot of people don't realize or see or, or, or aware of just, just kind of things that just keep everything going. Mike, you were instrumental in bringing FNBW's alternatives to violence project programs to the Sox center campus. How did that come about? As a house manager or resident staff out here at the Nest and living in a group residential housing center, I saw a need for conflict resolution from time to time. And I thought this would be a good way to address everybody at one time. One of the counselors out here had asked me to to speak about it for a few hours. So I kind of drew off of what I had learned in AVP before I did some research again. I, I looked up things on AVP, um, different exercises that I might be able to do. I got in contact with a former facilitator that I'd worked with in an Indiana State Prison, uh, Marion Butner. And um, she had sent me some links. She had sent me some information. She had sent me the contact information for the Friends for Nonviolent World. And then I got in contact with them. I did my T4F facilitator stuff online, got my certification. And they had come down here and they talked to us. I I wanted to to start doing some some live workshops again, and they hadn't been doing any of those because of COVID. And they were excited about it. So we talked about all that stuff. And within a few months, um, Brucey e. Hawkins and I and a couple other facilitators started planning a basic workshop. Two of the facilitators had kind of backed out before the, the workshop actually took place because of COVID concerns. Brucey stuck it out. We did it. it. We had 16 people, Alec being one of them. We did it. It was a huge success. There was a lot of positive feedback about it. And, and so we've been continuing to do that process since we did another basic workshop in February where we had 11 people graduate and we have one coming up next weekend. It's going to be an advanced workshop, actually. That's great. So what impact has AVP had on you personally? <laughs> okay, so, wow, that's huge. Um, because I, I did a lot of time in state prisons. I did a lot of time in federal prison. 
And those are extremely violent places, especially the federal penitentiary system. That's been one of the traumas maybe I've dealt with in my life and, and I've had to deal with on a consistent basis and then being involved again in a group residential setting, even though it's, it's different types of people and people with different values. There was still some some big hurdles for me to overcome when I first got here. However, I was exposed to other people who had also been incarcerated and, and I could see the sickness that that develops in people um, after long-term incarcerations, this, the different attitudes that you might convey towards others. And, and I got tired of it. So when I saw a lot of conflict happening out here and, and it wasn't by any means physical or anything like that, nothing like just argumentative type stuff or, or, or you could sense tension in the air. I just wanted to kind of eliminate that. So, um, it, it just brought that AVP stuff that I had learned before that I had, you know, taken workshops in before. And it kind of brought some of those values back up into my conscious thinking, my conscious awareness. And I just wanted to start to, you know, at, being a resident staff, I, I had to lead by example. I, you know, I have to be kind of a role model in that sense. So um, I needed to do that. And then I just kind of also, you know, with other things that have brought value into my life, I wanted to share that with other people. When you think back to where you were in your life just a couple of years ago, and then today. A couple of years ago, probably just getting ready to get into a COVID lockdown in a federal penitentiary. Um, not a lot of hope. Didn't know what I was getting out to. Was going to somewhere that I hadn't necessarily lived for a long time um, before that. So I didn't really have anything established there previously. And then with everything that was COVID related, you know, there was, who knows what's going to happen uh, as far as getting a job and um, finding housing. I mean, there was absolutely like, I was walking on a tightrope. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And there I was going to get released in July of 2020. So yeah, a couple of years ago, I had no footing on the ground, but um, now I'm pretty grounded. I, I have a good life. I'm, I'm happy. I got a lot of th good things going for me and I'm able to help other people also. That's fantastic. So Alec, I want to bring you into the conversation because you are currently staying at the nest. Can you share some of your backstory with us? I deployed to Afghanistan in 2010 with the uh, 34th infantry division, Red Bull. Um, was there for 10 months. And then um, once we returned, you know, I tried going to community college and things like that. And, uh, you know, what I thought was blowing off steam and, uh, you know, catching up on some good times was really just suppressing some pretty like, a, you know, a moral and ethic uh, feelings that I was essentially hiding from. I kind of just um, was very isolated myself and uh, stopped going to therapy, uh, talk therapy sessions. Um, and then I uh, started using methamphetamine. In 2019, 2020, there were about five or six 
uh, pretty significant things that uh, all landed on my plate at the same time on top of some uh, previous things that I had not fully worked through. And so I really, in a very short amount of time, lost all my hope. You know, I was always trying to stay positive and help other people. But really what I was doing is I was using that to not take care of myself. I was procrastinating. I was just running for myself. It got to the point, just a little bit more movement from my finger, and I would have ended it. So that happened a handful of times, but that's a very dark place to be. At that point, um, I had some interactions with local law enforcement in a few different counties in Iowa. And uh, my parents ended up putting a civil commitment on me. And uh, they got me on a warrant for uh, taking my dad's truck without permission. And so they took me into jail. I was transferred eventually to the Iowa City VA uh, in the locked uh, psych unit there, 9 West. And I was there for just over 60 days. I knew, you know, I was like, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Something's got to change. But I knew that I wasn't able to do it all on my own. And then towards the end of my stay at the Iowa City VA, I had accepted the fact that I was going to be there for the rest of my life. I was like, this is, you know, this is what it's going to be. And then (laughs) a few days later, my social worker comes in. She's like, hey, let's talk about your aftercare. I was like, what? She's like, well, you're not going to stay here for the rest of your life. And then she had brought up, you know, a couple halfway houses in Iowa, down Davenport, and then the domiciliary in Des Moines, Iowa. And I was like, I am going to need something a little bit more stable than that. Came back a couple days later, and she said that she had found this place in Minnesota called the Eagles Healing Nest. She's like, yeah, you know, they got horses and stuff like that. I'm like, that sounds great to me. So that night, I had called my mother and I was telling my mom about uh, the Eagles healings, the social worker brought up and my mom pulled up, she Googled it and I could hear over the phone, the video playing on the, I believe it's the nest's uh, homepage. And uh, it got to the part where Melanie was talking and I could hear it over the phone, but I couldn't see anything. And I was like, both my mom and I like broke down in tears. Like it just sounded so amazing. And we're like, yeah. So the next day the social worker came in and I was like, yeah, let's do this. So what has the nest meant to you? The Eagle's Healing Nest is a magical place and it has restored hope. Um, I've been able to rebuild relationships with my family, extended family. A couple friends, um, just the the love and support, not only from people here at the nest, but from all the communities around here. It's just, it's unbelievable, but I believe it because it's happening, right? And Dunphy mentioned earlier, you know, it's on 124 acres. You don't have to. You don't have to walk past the bars to get to an AA meeting or an NA meeting. Uh, We do that on site 
here at the chapel. Um, we do four meetings a week. There's last I tallied, there's like 35 hours worth of programming available to each resident every week. And, um, yeah, the ball's in our court once we get here. It's a, it's a safe place to be and to, and unlike other treatment programs or things like that, there's no time limit on how long a person has to or can stay here. You're not pressured to try and figure out what you need to do or what you should do with your life. If we as residents are willing and open to allowing ourselves to utilize the programming and the invaluable tools that we get here to put in our toolbox for, you know, everyday life. Like it's a, it's a chance to, it's an opportunity to make things, make your life right again and to start over. So Alec, ABP is one of the programs that you've taken advantage of at the Nest. Can you talk more about that? ABP has definitely built uh, or strengthened some leadership skills, uh, mostly in conflict resolution. And, you know, it's titled Alternatives to Violence. It's not so violent. It's just basically trying to work together in a community for a common goal. And if we have differences in a reasonable and level-headed way to work through those or to take the time to understand where another person might be coming from. That's great. So I want to throw a question out to any of you. What is unique about Eagle's Healing Nest? I'll take that. So I just wanted to say that what I think is unique to it is that there's not some sort of clinical model standard protocol that everybody is required to go through, participate in. Everybody kind of comes here with different issues. Um, There are people here with addiction issues, substance abuse issues. There are people here who've had TBIs, have a hard time just adjusting back into reintegrating with society, you know, for whatever reason, whether it be incarceration or substance abuse or, or PTSD from the military or TBIs. So there are a multitude of programs available here for people to participate in, in order to kind of build a sense of community again and feel like a part of community. And then there's opportunities here to kind of spread that out into the the community around here and to participate in different events and be a part of that community. And, And once you start to feel that, community within yourself again and and you're okay with that it's like being i don't know how to explain it other than being normal again not being separated just being a part of life again being a part of a community again being a part of something again without just being stuck inside your head all the time so in the intro i mentioned the invisible wounds of war can one of you talk more about what those are and why they seem so difficult to heal. I can feel that you don't have to just be a veteran to have the invisible wounds of war of PTSD and not all PTSD comes from combat. So you can have uh, military members that have military sexual trauma, male and female, right? 
those wounds are things that people don't want to acknowledge. So if you look at someone that has diabetes or they have cancer, right? Everyone can see what's going on normally because of their chemo. Um, if they have an amputation, they see that. Or if they have a heart attack, they have a pacemaker. But people don't get to see the wounds inside the head and inside the heart and the soul. And that includes family members, um, whether they're veterans or if they're incarcerated, their children. Um, they've shown the effects of PTSD um, generations um, later in family members based on not being treated for that. So back in the day, they called it shell-shocked. You know, they have a multitude of different names for it. You can get PTSD from being incarcerated. You can get PTSD for a whole host of things, being in a car accident. You can get PTSD by being locked down for two years due to COVID and the isolation. So that those invisible wounds come. So you need to expose those. We like to um, let them and give them enough time to... Um, heal from those. And that's a long journey. A lot of our veterans, our, our Marines in particular, um, when they uh, go to training or special ops, they're not trained to come home. Their honor is if they die on the battlefield defending God, country, and family. So when they come home, they may have survivor's guilt, which then triggers PTSD. So we use a whole host of different things to help bring them back. And so Melanie, while I have you, uh, you just entered a partnership that expands your focus to athletes who've experienced brain trauma. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. We have a special partnership with an organization called The Ranch. Um, Mark Pavlich, who helped uh, bring home uh, the Olympic gold against Russia. Um, and it was through those connections, like uh, Mike talked about earlier. So I met an amazing man, um, Jason Deshaw, who suffers from addiction and mental health. And he had actually been doing and uh, working stand downs. Um, he had some close friends that were veterans that had suicided. And he got to know Clint Malachuk, who serves with the, uh, and played with Mark Pavlich and, and uh, is part of the ranch board. And Mark ended up in a state hospital um, due to uh, some um, things from his traumatic brain injury from his time of being a hockey player that went untreated and undiagnosed um, and ultimately ended up at a state hospital versus a prison system. Um, so they had called and asked for help uh, to see if we could get Mark out of the state hospital and some help. And tragically, uh, he, we well, successfully, we brought him home here and he was thriving, but he had a vision of a place called the ranch to help athletes. Well, my sons actually played on the hockey teams that they helped create the warriors to play veteran hockey. And so the veterans here wanted to embrace them. He came from a military background and family members. So he makes him eligible to come here. We lost Mike the, or Pav this last year um, due to suicide. Um, but we wanted his mission to continue. And the ranch wasn't sure what that was going to look like or how to do that. So we partnered with them in a special partnership. So they will actually have a home here at our nest and we will share the resources together to heal them. That sounds fantastic. Sounds like you're going to be able to reach a whole other group of individuals as well. Absolutely. We were just at a wild game 
Uh, we were the seventh state that the National Hockey League is trying to bring awareness to mental health. And um, we actually had three veterans uh, that played hockey that came up and asked for help that night of the event. So that's pretty amazing. If it helps one, then it's all worth it. Yeah. Any closing thoughts or comments from either of you? Um, first, I'd like to thank ABP and thank Mike for bringing it here. We're very grateful. And I think that what Alec is saying and what Michael has said is truly what the vision was, that they would create their own place and their own programs and that they would hold themselves accountable of what they needed to heal. And they've done that and they continue to do that. So to watch them, although I don't participate in their AVP classes, I get to see the outcomes, which is really powerful. If I could just say on top of that, um, you know, AVP, I know it's, it's, it's a big thing in prisons, but um, the impact that it can have on communities in general, not just like a group residential housing center, but I mean, the things that you learn here, the, the, the skills that you learn, the bonding that happens, you know, this kind of thing needs to be, this needs to happen a little bit more often in all communities, you know, regardless of what it is. Um, so I, I hope by me bringing it here and exposing it to a few other people, it can be a self-sustaining program here at the nest where we develop people who are interested in becoming facilitators and, and carry on the tradition here. And, um, then there's the, you know, uh, their own group of facilitators and then hopefully maybe, you know, take it out into different communities someday. Like, like, you know, I did from prison and brought it here. We talked about that to do that for families, right? For spouses. Uh, because conflict resolution uh, for them uh, coming out of prison or even in a veteran community is huge. That's that communication key and that reconnection. Well, Melanie, Alec, Mike, thank you so much for your candor and for sharing your stories. We really appreciate it. Thank you. More information about the Eagles Healing Nest is available at eagleshealingnest.org. And you can learn about the Alternatives to Violence Project at fnbw.org slash AVP. Folks, you just heard a wonderful episode from the Everyday Nonviolent Podcast got Charlotte Sebastian sitting in today as guest host for Spirit in Action. Our website, northernspiritradio.org, and on that site we've got all kinds of links, including those to FNBW. Come to our website, follow the links, get involved in all the world healing work that's being done by folks across the U.S., also on the northernspiritradio.org website, you'll find a place to post comments. We love your input. We love having conversation be two ways. So please do post a comment when you visit. There's also an opportunity to support us. So look to donate. And even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is to support organizations like FNVW and all of the community radio stations. We're now up to, I think, 44 stations nationwide that are carrying Northern Spirit Radio programs across the U.S. And they depend on volunteers to a large extent. So your hands and your wallet are very important in helping them function. So please do support your local community radio station 
We're going to go right back now to Charlotte Sebastian, who's guest hosting for Spirit in Action. Charlotte, what are we going to listen to next? Next, we have an edited version of a program from about three years ago. John Vang speaks with Joanne Perry, who hosted the podcast for several years. She was actually the original host. In this episode, John shares his personal experiences with violence, incarceration, and some of the efforts he's made through his employment and volunteer work that address hyper-masculinity. He's doing just some great work supporting women and people of color. We're welcoming Mr. John Bang today. Mr. Vang is a dedicated activist working toward a world where young men of every culture explore their place in the world and what it means to be a man and what it means to be manly. Mr. Vang began his journey years ago. I'm not sure exactly where, but we're going to have him talk a little bit about that and has worked through both his volunteer efforts and his paid vocation to address the issue that now circles our globe. How we fail our young men and what can we all do? Mr. Bang comes to us today to discuss his passage through the world, from an indoctrination of violent culture to a life dedicated to active nonviolence. Welcome, John. We're delighted to have you as part of our ongoing commitment to be a voice for justice, non-militarism, and for social change. Thank you. I'm pretty honored to be here, and uh, it's always good to uh, talk with you, Joanne. It might be helpful for all of us to hear a little bit about yourself, who you are now, and where you've been. Are you willing to share a little of your personal story, please? Sure, sure. Right now, I am working for the government in a uh, program aimed at uh, helping women and minority-owned businesses get a level playing field when they're trying to get government contracts. So that's you know what I get paid to do during the daytime, but... On the nights and the weekends, I actually spend a lot of my time doing community work, organizing around uh, ending gender-based violence, prison reform, and building community uh, where I'm at and uh, helping uh, young people. I know that you have a young family started and things are really (laughs) changing over quickly. Yeah, I recently just got married and then I have a uh, child on the way. Yeah, it's really... uh, becoming very real, real quickly. (laughs) Well, it is always interesting to run into someone, a young person, because you are fairly young here, who has made a leap from trying to grow up and get all the things in order in their lives, and then all of a sudden become dedicated to making the world a better place, in addition to working full-time, having family. It's quite an amazing process you've gone through. Can you tell Tell us about a moment in your life when things became different for you personally. A huge moment in my life where I, I really felt like I woke up was right after I was uh, arrested by the police and uh, was sent in the county jail. And uh, I was reflecting upon like my life and what I did to get to that point, you know, because I had just gotten arrested for... Uh, second degree murder and I was sitting in the county just in a state of confusion and it it felt really surreal. Is this real? You know, this is something I saw on TV. I I started analyzing my life like how did how did I get here? What did I do? And that is actually when when I started really waking up and 
asking myself, why did I do these things? Why didn't I say no? Or why did I say stop? Or why didn't I choose a different path? So that that was really uh, a moment in my life where I was lost, but yet I was finding my way. Did you ever come to any conclusions why you would let your life go this direction? Yeah. Um, as I was thinking through it and growing up, I reflected upon the things that my grandma told me when I was a little kid or my mom told me or um, things I saw on TV, seeing uh, people hearing my parents say, hey, boys don't cry. If somebody hits you, you hit them back. And I bet you had to hit them harder, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was that. And then also just really suppressing a lot of natural reactions like the the feelings and emotions that I had and then not really dealing with them, but just being defensive and protecting myself by putting that part of myself away, the vulnerable part, so that I can uh, manage the situation that's in front of me. And that's what I was taught, how I can resolve things or uh, deal with things. And uh, for a moment in time, that was what worked. But as I got older, you know, I, I discovered that things just escalated. You know, that didn't really resolve anything and uh, situations became more serious and people got hurt and eventually, you know, lives are lost. My guess is, and I might be wrong here, that there was an extraordinary amount of pressure, not just in the upbringing, but in the people around you. Everybody was doing the same thing and pushing. Is that true? Yeah. For a lot of the young men that I grew up with, you had to live up to this standard or uh, what people are calling the box, the man box. You got to be tough. You can't let somebody uh, talk down on you. And you got to present this bravado of hyper masculinity and being uh, really strong, not showing fear and just not being vulnerable at all. And then when you are doing that, you are accepted socially in your group of friends. And then also, this is what we thought women were attracted to, too. So we worked really hard to present this persona. And I I really think that it was more of like a mask that I put on. And because internally and deep inside, the things that I saw growing up and the things I I experienced seeing my mom and my dad interact, it, it really hurt when I saw those things happen in front of me seeing women being mistreated or just not being valued, it hurt and it made me question, but I didn't have the words to describe it at that time. I experienced it. I knew that something was not right. It didn't sit well with me, but I didn't know how to articulate it or find my voice. So I just kind of sat back and like watched it all happen. Seeing my relatives work through conflicts within our own families where the men were treated differently and the things they said were carried a different weight from the women and how when they were trying to speak up or voice their thoughts that it was shunned or not really respected and not really valued. You know, seeing those things, it, it really like impacted me on how I should respond or how I could respond and what worked and what didn't work. At that age, I, I just kind of took that as This is how we uh, respond and act to be socially acceptable. Well, I actually have two questions in this. If you were to look at the young man that he used to be, say at six or at 10, what would you like to have heard that would have addressed the need that you just described, the lack of articulation, the lack of awareness as to 
what things are right and true. I really feel that emotionally, it would have been good to know and understand that it's okay to cry and that I am going to feel upset, whether it's angry or feel hurt, that these emotions are okay. You know, you have your really high and happy emotions and you have your low emotions where you're not happy or uh, angry or disappointed. Uh, learning those different types of feelings and names of feelings to say, oh, you know, I'm not happy right now. Uh, I need some space and different ways to like express myself that it was okay to feel those things and that it is not something that would last. Yes, you may feel angry right now or uh, frustrated, but it'll pass and things will get better. So I, I think knowing that would have been really helpful for me to, you know, voice that out and articulate that to my parents. It might have helped others learn how to deal with it and then also help me uh, feel like I was being heard, that my thoughts and my feelings were being valued too, instead of just me just, uh, you know, crumpling it all up and stuffing it away and then not really having those feelings being acknowledged or resolved. I am fascinated by your term man box. Part of me wonders if part of the problem is, is that when we build this man box around ourselves and our feelings, our vulnerabilities, our vision of what our world should look like, maybe we forget to tell people this is just a small piece of their lives. Maybe if we built the imagery so this was off in this corner, we could go to it. But there's this whole other life that we are expected to lead. Maybe that would be more useful. But you're right. People define in every culture, not just in the Southeast Asian culture, not just in the Hmong community, what it means to be masculine based on a very tight container. Yeah, yeah. I learned some of this stuff while I was in there. And then as I came out, I, I started uh, reading articles and then also watching like TED Talks about some of these things about masculinity. It really connected a lot of the dots, you know, the different events that happened in my life. It really helped me make sense of all of that. Seeing that this is something that is social, it wasn't just something that men forced or enforced upon boys as they were growing up, but it's also something that women also enforce too. I remember hearing uh, some of my friends in the African community that their mom would lock them out of the house because after school they came home, they got beat up by some other kid, and then their mom said, don't come back home until you know you defend yourself. I'm not going to let you in. You got to fight for yourself, and I'm not going to let you run into the house like a coward. They felt an immense pressure to go back and retaliate or do something to retain their identity or who they was, or else they would not be welcomed back inside the house. And just me hearing that, that was so uh, painful and sad that this child was coming home looking for support, having all types of fear in their, their mom or their dad saying, like, you go back right out there or don't come home. You're not that type of behavior is not welcomed here. It is very interesting how physical violence in so many minds needs to be attacked with physical violence. There doesn't seem to be space for conflict resolution or for talking things through or confronting a person, even though that takes just as much courage as going out and beating somebody up. It is quite amazing mental adjustment we need to make the leap over. But as this is a program on active nonviolence and the prevention of violence, and these are enormous topics. 
Can you tell us a little bit where your personal commitment came from? I understand that you were locked up for a while and you had plenty of time to think there. But what made you move into active nonviolence? Well, I would say a big part of it is growing up. At age 23, my mind was still fairly young, and uh, that was actually when I got incarcerated. I wasn't able to slow down and listen to my body or listen to my uh, emotions and reactions. Because at that point, I, I really would just responded out of fear or else responded out of uh, just instinct. Here I am in my 30s now, my reactions to a lot of life situations are a lot more measured and I think a lot more critically about things before I react and respond. A a good story uh, or example of this, after I had uh, came home from prison, I was visiting a friend in Duluth. You know, they were going to college up there. They wanted to go out to one of the bars and uh, whatnot to unwind after uh, finals. So, you know, here we are in the bar and we're dancing and having fun. A lot of the people around us are inebriated. My friend, he had a girlfriend and there was another guy that was trying to hit on her and he just would not take no. He tried to grab her hand and all that stuff. And, you know, that situation escalated to a point where it was coming pretty closely to an altercation. And the old me in that situation would have responded violently like, Oh, you know what? I got to protect my friend. I got to support my friend. I got to do something. I would have, you know, responded violently and jumped in and there would have been a fight. But me listening to my body, knowing that like, ooh, this is escalating. This is not right. I I have other options. It, It allowed me to listen to my body and slow down to think through the process and say, you know what? No, my friend... His girlfriend is a level-headed person. She can defend herself. And there are security guards here. And they are walking this way already. They see this situation already. And another one of my friends that was there with us was getting ready to do that. And I like, no, you know, I, I'm not going to jump into that situation like that because it's already been taken care of. And she was like, no, 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 to tell her boyfriend no. And then to tell the other guy no, too. You know, the situation was stopped by the security guard. They broke everything up. People went their separate ways and the night ended up okay. But then afterwards, after the event, you know, my one friend was like, why didn't you support us? Why didn't you jump in and do anything? And I was like, no, I'm not doing that because she is very capable and she's not helpless. There are security guards there. That's not how I choose to respond to situations like this because it can quickly escalate and people could very well get hurt. And we wouldn't be here talking about this right now either. That's a pretty interesting story. I will say that not only do you now have a mind-body connection, but you also have an awareness of the logic. And in addition to all this, everybody walked away alive. Sometimes that is absolutely the most perfect solution. And I just love the way that you respected the woman who was able to take care of herself and handle not just a fairly obnoxious drunk, but also the boyfriend. That's a pretty good story. I think we, as men, don't give women enough credit. Uh, we always I, I get stuck in that stereotype of like the helpless woman that needs Prince Charming to come rescue her. And that's part of that man box that, that fits into the stereotype of what a man is. And then it really devalues the women and their own personal power. Yes, it does. 
I know your paid work is with young men, uh, with that government agency you were talking about working with minority owned and women owned businesses. Can you tell me what this actually means and how does it work towards your greater goals? So for me being incarcerated and locked up and coming home and uh, seeing the struggles and experiencing the struggles of somebody who is a part of our community who wants to contribute and be a part of the community once again, but then the stigmas in society that just does not allow for a person with a criminal background to become a part of our community again. And by that, I mean not being able to find a job, not being able to uh, find a place to live, uh, even though they can pay for it and they have not committed any crimes and they're following all the rules, uh, not even jaywalking, and yet they cannot be a part of the community again. That really hit home because... I believe that if people are genuinely trying to contribute and be a part of the community again, I, I want our community to be able to recognize that we need to give them a chance or else we are condemning them to failure. If you don't give anybody a chance to build a life once again, you're really saying that you are no longer a part of our community and then you ask a question, why is there recidivism? Why do people go back? Because there is no opportunity for them to actually be a part of our community. So a bigger picture for me is to start up a business where I'm employing people with a background and giving them the opportunity to get a job, find a place to live, and helping the community be more aware of this uh, issue and more acceptance in the community for this. I hear that it is both a spiritual commitment and also a historical injustice that you are trying to write. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. It really strikes home to me because I feel like I'm pretty lucky to be able to have a job and to even work for the government. I mean, never in a million years prior to me getting this job would I ever think that I'm working for the government, being in, in a position of power where I can open doors for others, especially with my background. It, it's unbelievable, but I also appreciate and respect that this is an opportunity that I was given, and I understand that not everybody is afforded this opportunity because it's really economic violence that's being committed against a lot of folks. I know there is only so many ways you can show up in addition to having a full-time job having a young family, and doing all the activism work you can. But you are a very articulate man, and your ability to influence the legislatures might actually be one of the callings you might consider in the future, <laughs> because you really understand what the problems are. I appreciate that. But we're going to pull it back to your personal story, because, of course, this is really about people living lives of active nonviolence, like lives of pacifism, being a voice for peace, being a voice for justice. Now I'm going to ask you, how does being a voice for active and principled living show up in your neighborhood, your job, your personal relationships? Well, for me, it's really, I feel like this is me being a responsible member of my community and not just being somebody who's sitting on the sidelines and watching the news and saying, oh my God, I read this headline, this has happened in my community, and oh my gosh, how did that happen? And being uh, an active member of the community, taking responsibility, talking to people about these issues, and 
helping to teach uh, young men that you have a different path. Let's let's slow down. Let's talk about what happened. What options do we have? And for me, that's really me being a member of the community. Whereas when I was younger, before I got incarcerated, there was a part of me that did not really care whether I lived or died the next day. I didn't see value in my own life. And when I didn't see value in my own life, it was really hard for me to see value in another person's life. So I didn't really feel like I was a part of the community. But now, you know, I have lots of uh, relationships in the community to keep me grounded. And they they really keep me going uh, because I want to make the community better. And I want to do this not only just for myself, because I, I see the long term impacts of this. That this is something that I want to do and create, not just for me, but for my children, for everyone's children, the next generation of folks who are growing up here in America, because a safer community for everybody and a better community where everybody can be treated more equally and have equal opportunity at reaching things and attaining things is a better community for everybody. It's a good life vision. Thank you very, very much for being with us today. It has been a real pleasure and an honor. You're welcome. I, I always enjoy talking to you. And uh, it's a real honor to be able to share this piece of myself and my life. While John Vang didn't mention it, he too participated in the Alternatives to Violence Project while he was incarcerated. AVP is a national program which operates under the auspices of several organizations nationally, including FNVW. These are powerful stories and hope you found them interesting and inspiring. For more information about FNVW, including access to all of the Everyday Nonviolence podcasts, please go to fnvw.org. Mark, thanks so much for the opportunity to introduce our work to your audience and back to you. Well, thank you so much, Charlotte. Again, Folks, you are listening to Charlotte Sebastian presenting. She's one of the producers for the Everyday Nonviolence Podcast by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW. I'm so thankful you helped us out today, Charlotte, and I look forward to having you back very soon. And folks, we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 